Well, good morning. Uh, so glad that you could join us as we do our online worship uh, for those of you watching this way. But let me pray for us. We're going to be in Romans chapter 2 as we continue in our uh, series here. But let me pray for us and then we'll jump in this morning. God, we thank you for the opportunity to spend time in your word. And even if it's through uh, digital means and not being able to be in person, we thank you that we have the opportunity to do this, that you've provided this way. So we pray that you would lead us and guide us as we spend time in the glorious truth of your word and what it says for us here in Romans. I pray that you would lead and guide us in all truth, that it would be uh, for your glory uh, all that is done and said. And so we pray that you would teach us and lead us and guide us this morning. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And so... We're going to pick back up in Romans chapter 2 uh, this morning. And as we do, I just want to uh, remind you of, of something, uh, a story that uh, one of the great Christian apologists of the, the 20th century, uh, Francis Schaeffer, used to use as an example. And he would tell this example as, as uh, to point to our culpability before God, the fact that we are uh, guilty before him, that we have sinned in his world and that we're against him. And so Paul's using this and talking about this a lot in the early chapters of Romans and as we are in the, in chapter two. But, uh, in Schaefer's example, and maybe a little bit dated, he, he talks about an invisible, uh, tape recorder. And he says, imagine that when you're born, that hung around your neck is a, an invisible tape recorder. And this tape recorder only comes on Whenever you tell others what you think they should or should not do, that's all the recorder records. It takes your voice saying what you think is correct or incorrect or what is good or, or what is bad and it only records that. And so Schaefer would go on to say, when you come to the end of your life, you will stand before God. And, and some will say, I didn't know your law or I didn't have the Bible or how would I know this and how can you judge me? on these things. And he says, and at that time, they'll take the invisible tape recorder off from around your neck. And to your horror, you will hear your own voice uh, telling the things that you think are right and wrong and what you should do and what you should not do. And he said, and then if you were to be judged just by your own standard, that none of us would measure up even to the own, our own standard, the things that we've said, that our, our conscience bears witness uh, that we know the law innately in us because we're made in God's image. And that's what Paul's saying here in Romans. And we see this in, in Romans chapter 2 and the end of chapter 1. And so we innately know to some degree what is right and wrong and that we have not measured up. And so every one of us is guilty. And so Paul's going to make this point that none of us can be saved by our works, that none of us measures up even to our own standard. And as he does, there's a line drawn and a point that we come to, it's almost like we're, we're walking, if you can imagine, a mountain ridge. If, if the ridge is here and both sides fall off drastically on either side, so we're walking right on this path in the middle. And there's, imagine with me for a second, there's a several thousand foot drop off on either side. And the path is very narrow as you walk along the center and you'd fall off to either side if you take a step the wrong way. On one side we have, works cannot save you. You can never do enough to, to attain salvation because God is holy and perfect. And, and Paul's making this argument that none of us measures up. None of us can do enough. You can never do works. And so on one side, you have this lie that our works is what will save us. But then on the other side, you have a, a another lie that, that, that says that we're saved, um, that yes, we're saved by grace and what God has done for us. And that is true. But then the lie comes in that because that's the case, obedience is unimportant. 
that our works don't matter and it doesn't matter what we do. And both of those are lies and both sides lead to destruction. It's kind of the opposite on either side. But in the middle is that we're saved by grace through faith and what Christ has done for us. It's not our works, but that our works, our obedience are evidence that we understand what God has done for us. And so there's this important distinction. And if we leave that out, we can make God's grace a cheap grace. Yes, I'm saved by grace. And so I can do whatever I want and it doesn't matter. And the Bible says, no, that's not true. That when you're saved by grace and you understand who God is and what he's done, it will change your life. Uh, cheap grace doesn't understand the glory of what Christ has done and what it has cost him on our behalf. And so it's a danger on both sides, whether we would just do whatever we want. We call that licentiousness or living however we want. And we could fall off to that one side. But the other side is that we're saved by what we do, like a legalism. I do these things, and if I do them well enough, I'll be saved. But neither one of those leads to salvation. Both are a dangerous path that is the opposite of what the gospel teaches. And so this morning, I want us to consider the danger of both sides and how we live in a life that's fully in in accord with both. A whole life uh, discipleship or a whole life alignment or continuity that sees our works uh, as evidence of our faith and not what saves us, that it's Christ that saves us. But at the same time, that we don't get off into this other side, that that we uh, have no change in our life through faith. And so the way I would look at it and the way I want us to look at it today is these two sides is this. First, faith without works is dead. It's what James says in James chapter two, that if you come to a saving faith in Jesus, your life will be changed. There will be works that are evidence of what Christ has done for you in your life. True belief will have a changed life. That's the first side. But then the second side I want us to consider is that works without faith is also dead. Just as faith without works is dead, works, doing works to try to earn our worth or putting our faith in our works is also dead and that will lead to destruction. Saving faith will never be accomplished by your works. Your works will always be in response to a saving faith in what Jesus has done for you. And so then I want us to then bring those together and consider how we live in full alignment of both. And so let's go to Romans chapter 2. We're going to pick up in verse 12 as Paul says this. For all have sinned, for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness. And their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. And so we're in the middle of a greater argument of what Paul is saying, that no one will be saved by their works. But it is the good news of what Jesus has done that saves us, right? He's he's making this case all the way from the beginning, middle of of chapter 1 to towards the end of chapter 3. He says, all of us know how to live. Our conscience bears witness. We know that's kind of the invisible tape recorder. All of us have seen that our works uh, prove to be deficient, that none of us measures up even to our own standard. And since God is perfectly just, he will repay us according to our works, which seems in, in Paul's argument here to go against 
this saved by grace through faith, that we're not saved by works. Especially if you go back and if you look at verses 6 through 11 that Luke took us through last week. Render each according to his works and those that are self-seeking with with no obedience, there'll be wrath and fury. And he says, for those who obey, there will be honor and peace. Or, Or we can go to right here in verse 13 that I just read. For it is not hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but it is doers of the law that will be justified. And you can read that and you can see, get this this idea that we will be saved by uh, our works. That it's not grace through faith, but it's our works. For it's not hearers of the law who are righteous, but doers of the law, those that do good works. And so is that what Paul is saying? Is that what he means here? And so you can read that verse and you can take it and you can you can focus on verse 13 and go, yes, we're saved by works. That's the way it works. And you can read that. But if you read that out of context and just take that one verse, you can seek to make it say that. But that's the exact opposite of the point Paul is trying to say here. It's it's the opposite of the argument that he's making. It's, it's in fact embedded right in the middle of a much bigger argument where he's saying the exact opposite that will come to its dramatic conclusion in chapter 3 and verse 20 when Paul emphatically writes, for by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Talking about God, we will not be justified by our works, no one. And so the question I want you to consider is, does Paul contradict himself? Should we, how should we see verse 13 and what he says? Or how should we see verses 6 through 11 that he said earlier in chapter 2? And then say, no, he doesn't contradict himself, but you have to follow the flow of thought and the context in which he is speaking. This section is right in the middle of a bigger argument of showing us of how no one will be made righteous by our works. And so there's two ways I want you to consider what he says here in in, in verse 13. How should we take that? And there's two ways I think we could take it that are both correct, that I think both are right. Um, First, Paul could be saying that if someone existed that could keep the law perfectly, that they could be justified before God. Right? You could read it that way. If you keep all of God's commandments perfectly, you will be justified. That is true. But then the question comes right after that, but who has done this? Well, no one, right? No one will be made righteous between before God by their works. He'll say at the end of chapter three, no one's done it except for Jesus. And so the argument goes that Paul's using a hypothetical. He's asking the question just to emphatically show us that no one has actually done it and no one could do it except for Jesus. And that would fit with the context that would fit with scripture. That's a true statement. And so if that's the interpretation we would take, uh, that doesn't mean it's wrong. That could be the interpretation. But I think there's a better interpretation of what Paul is saying here. And I think if we go back to beginning of this chapter 2 and we look at verse 4, look at what he says there. If you've got your Bible, look at chapter 2, verse 4. Or do you... Show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. Right? God is gracious and kind and long-suffering, and as he's doing so, and he's giving you this grace in your life, and he allows you to continue to draw breath despite your sinfulness, he's doing so that you would come to faith and it would lead to repentance and a changed life. Right? That's what repentance means means turning from sin and to God. 
right? Faith without works is dead, but when you come to a saving faith, God's kindness, his grace comes into your life. It leads to repentance. You turn from your sin and to God and we begin to live in a new way. But then look at this section because there's a secondary point I think he's making that goes with that chapter two and verse four. So pick up in verse 14. For when Gentiles who did not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they did not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. while Their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. So follow what he's saying here. He talks about when those who stand before God, they will be judged. But look at how he says we will be judged. They will show the laws written on their hearts, right? Our conscience bears witness. We know what is true because we're innately made in God's image. And he says it will accuse or even excuse them. And then he says you will know without a shadow of doubt your guilt, right? It will excuse or even accuse or even excuse them, right? You'll know the things that you did and why you did them and what is true. And you will see where you are lacking, Every single one of us, because no one will be justified by our works. And so even go back to that idea of the invisible tape recorder. When all your works of your entire life are laid bare, you will know so clearly as you stand before God's holiness, the ways in which you have failed every single one of us. Every mouth will be shut. You are a law to yourself. You know because your conscience bears witness. But then here's the key. Look at what he says in verse 16. Circle this, underline it, highlight it, exclamation points. On that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Jesus is going to be our judge according to the gospel, according to the good news. You will ultimately be judged. All your works, good and bad, laid out before according to the gospel. Well, what does that mean? How are you saved? By what you do with the gospel, according to the gospel. Remember what he said at the very uh, kind of statement that set off this section in chapter 1 and verse 16. I am not ashamed of the gospel as the power of God for salvation to all who believe. The only way you will have works that are evidence of your faith is that if you're clinging to Jesus, the good news that what God has done for you. And he says, on that day when all are judged according to the gospel, our works will be seen. But the judgment will be according to what we do in Jesus. And so our works will be seen as evidence of our understanding of the gospel. And so then when he talks about being a doer of the law in this context, what does that mean? And I think it's those that are repentant. What is the gospel by which we will be judged? Or or what does all of the law and the prophets point to? Or what does it mean to be a doer of the law considering what God has revealed to us in his law? Or or we could even say, what is the purpose of the law? It's to show us that we haven't kept it and we need a savior. We need the perfect law keeper who's done for us what we couldn't do. And we cling to him in faith. So now the main thrust here is he's talking about being judged and deserving wrath, and none of us can do it. But the only way is the power of God in the gospel and what he's done for us, right? And so that's the way he started all of this. He set this off. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation. 
And so he's emphatically saying that we cannot save ourselves by our works. We all deserve God's wrath. We are all lost apart from the good news of what Jesus has done for us. Yet the gospel is the power of God to save us. And on the day of judgment, we will be judged according to the gospel. Because that's the only way we are saved and by God's grace to us in Jesus. But then I want you to consider our works in that. A true believer is someone who recognizes they're not saved by what they do, but what Jesus has done. And when they begin to live out of that reality, our works will be laid bare, not as the way in which we're saved, but evidence of our faith. It's not what saves us, but it points us to that Jesus was working in and through us. And it's it's evidence that God, we understood what God was doing for us and that we couldn't do it for ourselves. And so the truth of Scripture is that as we grow in our relationship with God, what we call our sanctification, we're bringing our lives in alignment of who we now are in Jesus and what he's done for us. There's an outward evidence of this faith. The spiritual reality of what Jesus has done for us begins to live out in our lives and it begins to change us. And we begin to seek to have works in which we honor God and love others, but never uh, to save us, but in response to the fact that we're saved by the glorious good news of the gospel. And so our, our, our works will always be judged according to the gospel. They will stand as evidence that we're clinging to faith in Jesus and what he's done for us. And so this is what I want us to see. Do you see that your works are, are not what save you, but they're evidence that you understand the good news of what God has done for you? And so that's why James can say, Faith without works is dead. There will be evidence of God's grace to you in your life because God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance and repentance is changing to follow him. Now, it doesn't mean that you do that perfectly, right? It doesn't mean that we suddenly have done all of it in every way, but it's pointing us to that we're not relying on our works to be saved, but our heart change is in response to the grace of what God has done for us. Right? This is why we get to the end of this section. And he says a Jew is not one outwardly in verse 28, but then he says a Jew is one inwardly and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. You're not saved by keeping all the laws. You're saved by what Jesus has done for you. And as the spirit comes in and begins to change you and, and you do have works that now are evidence of your faith, but you're not saved by those works. You're not saved by following the rules, but by a work of the spirit because of what Christ has done for us in his finished work. And so I want to bring all this back together in the context here of what Paul is saying. True believers saved by grace and what Jesus has done become doers of the law. Now, that doesn't mean perfect, sinless law keepers that do everything perfectly. Jesus is the perfect, sinless law keeper who has saved us. But a doer of the law in context is a person who, who though we sin, loves God, loves his word, hates his own sin, confesses them and clings to God in grace and mercy in Jesus. It's kind of like in the Old Testament when it talks about someone being blameless. They weren't blameless in that they were perfect. They didn't lay blame, but they confessed their sin. Don't you know that God's kindness leads you to repentance? A doer of the law is someone who is repenting. And so here's what I want us to see first. Clinging, uh, a doer of the law is those that cling to the whole of the law and what it teaches and points to, namely that what Jesus has done for us and what we could never do for ourselves. 
And so when we stand before God and all the motivations of your heart will be made known, what you know and trust and believe will be made clear and it will become clear that the role uh, of what you were doing was not to earn your salvation, that that was not the role of your works, but it was in response to what Jesus has done for you and those works will stand in evidence that you understand who God is and what he's done for you in Jesus and there'll be no hiding. It will be abundantly clear that you deserve God's wrath, but you are saved only by Jesus' righteousness. And any good works that you had were in response to the glorious good news of what he's done for you. So faith without works is dead. But what about the other side? If that's the narrow path of walking along, we can fall off believing that we're saved by our works. What's the other side of that equation? And so look at verse 17 here for just a second. And following, but if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law. And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind and a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of a children of children, having in the law, the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that you must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law, for it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision indeed is of value, but if you obey the law, uh, if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. Right? And so what Paul turns and addresses here, what he's doing is he addresses the super religious that have bought into the lie, that are in danger of falling off kind of the other side of the cliff, right, so to speak, of believing that they can be saved by their works. They put their faith in their works and their good doing. I'm good with God by what I do. And what he's saying here and what Paul does is he uses a rhetorical advice. He's he's kind of addressing uh, a hypothetical dialogue partner, the, the very super religious person that believes that they can save himself, save themselves. Now, if you who believe you're a Jew and you do all these things, right? But don't don't get hung up on him calling them a Jew. It's a religious person. It could just as easily be a Christian today, right? Uh, someone who's who's seeing it in that way. And so I want you just to think about uh, what he's pointing us to here as he does that, right? Uh, if you're a Christian, you understand that this is all, that we're saved by grace through faith in what Jesus has done. We say this all the time. It's the very heart of what we believe in the gospel, that we could never do enough. You know that you need Jesus. You know you need what God has done for you. But it's not me, I can't do this. But I want us to take seriously what Paul says here as he makes this argument. Because the heart's default of all, all people, all of us, is to place ourselves at the center of our lives. That is what sin does. It makes it all about me rather than about God. 
Instead of loving God and loving people, I want to love myself and make it about me. And so that comes into the way that we approach our relationship with God. And it's the way that all man-made religion unfolds. I'm at the center and it's what I do. And if I do enough good things, I can earn my way back. And just about every person you meet today that is not in a saving relationship with Jesus, this will be their default. It will be their thinking. And it's so prevalent and it's so enticing to the sinfulness of our heart. Even as believers, we fall back into this type of thinking almost daily. God's pleased with me because I had a good day. I did these things, so now God is more pleased with me. That's works-based righteousness. That's saying I'm saved by my good works. God is more pleased with me because I did those things. And it's so alluring to our sinful hearts. And so please don't dismiss what Paul's saying here. Don't go, well, that's not me. I'm not that person. We're all this person at different times. And he's really going to hammer home this idea that you cannot be saved what you do by what you do and how destructive that thinking is. So think about what he says here when he, when he says, uh, you who preach about stealing, do you steal? Are you who say you cannot commit adultery? Do you commit adultery? Or those who abhor idols, do you rob temples? And I think he's taking his cue from Jesus and, and, and similarly what Jesus teaches uh, in the Sermon on the Mount and just all through his, his earthly ministry where he goes to not just the outward actions but the heart that's behind it. It's never just outward compliance. It's never just behavior modification. Right? We can quickly, when we do that and we just focus on outward compliance or behavior modification, we can quickly become deceived about our good works and miss our sinfulness. You know what I mean? They say, well, well, I, I've never committed adultery. I've never cheated on my life. So I'm, I'm a pretty good person. Or I've never murdered someone. So I'm, I'm not that bad. But Paul here and Jesus similarly and all of scripture doesn't give you that. The word of God cuts to the heart of the matter. Your intentions and your motivations and your very heart towards God. It's not just your works. It's not just outward compliance. And so think about what Jesus says uh, when he teaches on the Sermon on the Mount. Maybe you know what I'm referring to. Matthew chapter 5. You have heard it said you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus ups the ante to be something much more profound. God is not just after behavior modification. He's not just after some good works. He's after your heart. He's after your affections, not just outward compliance. Matthew chapter five, you've heard it said that those of old, you shall not murder and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the count the council and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Do you see what Jesus is doing in both these examples? It's not just about outward compliance. It's not about some good works. It's not just these things, but it's a whole life continuity. He doesn't just want your emotions. He doesn't want just your outward doing. He wants the entirety of your being. And so our goal as a church is to make disciples of Jesus Christ that make disciples and a disciple of Jesus is never called merely to outward compliance. It's never ever about behavior modification. It's never just about uh, an inward spiritual feeling. 
It's always a call to love God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself in response to what God has done for you in Jesus and his glorious grace to you. Love God and obey his commandments out of an overflow of your heart that sees that you can never do it on your own and that God has done it for you. You see, faith without works is dead, just as works without faith is dead. You can be as busy and religious as humanly possible and still miss the point. You can make it all about your doing and not what Jesus has done for you. And you can operate out of this complete misunderstanding and fall off that side of the mountain, so to speak. And you can think that you're saved by your doing and make it all about you. And so I regularly see that people busying themselves with a flurry of activity to make themselves acceptable before God. Friends, the whole point of this first section that Paul's driving home here in Romans is that you cannot do this. And so make this very personal as you read this and as you look at it. You know, sometimes when we read the Bible and Paul says, you who are a Jew do this and he talks in this language and it seems distance, distant because of social context. The phrases he uses when he talks about Jews and observing the law and these things. And he goes, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. And you kind of hold it at arm length, but don't do that. Don't let that be the case. When you look at what he's saying here, uh, replace Jew with uh, being a Christian. Right? You call yourself a Jew. You call yourself a Christian. Instead of looking at the law, maybe plug in church attendance. Instead of circumcision, Baptism and begin to really think about what he's saying here. Let God's word speak directly to you. I was reading in a Bible study and the the author wrote it this way. And it is helpful to me as I was reading this text. And so hear this as we're ending this morning. You who call yourself a, a born again Christian and you are assured that you are all right with God because you signed a commitment card or you walked an aisle And you really cried that night and you remembered that you had strong feelings for God. So you must have been converted that night. You who are rather proud that you've memorized a dozen of scripture verses and have the right answer to a large array of questions. You also brag to yourself that you've led other people to a commitment to Christ. You've even been leading a Bible study. But so what if you've been baptized? Has there been a real change in your life has your heart been truly affected is there an internal softness that is humbled that is a grateful spirit that has a sense of god's presence do you know that christianity is not having confidence in these external things it is a new creation inside that comes from trusting christ not your spiritual achievements only you can answer that question as you come before god and you ask him to show you But when we talk about uh, faith without works is dead or works without faith is dead, how do we bring that together? We see that God's kindness leads us to repentance. Understanding what God has done for you in Jesus leads to true heart change. To be a doer of the word doesn't mean that you are perfect. None of us are. Paul keeps pressing this point to show us this so clearly. But a doer of the word is one that's life that has been changed by the glorious good news of what God has done for us. That is a new creation in Jesus as the spirit comes in. 
and begins to live in step with who we now are in Jesus, that we have been saved by grace through faith and it is not our own doing, but then it begins to change us into a life that wants to honor him in all things. Our works spring from our faith. And so the importance of seeing how all that comes together in the glorious good news of Jesus. It's the cross that brings us to the understanding that it is only in what Christ has done. It shows us that God's holiness cannot be attained by our works, but it also shows us God's glorious grace to us and the way he loves us and that love changes and melts us as we focus on who we now are in Jesus. And so let us be a people that sees the glory of the good news of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to all who believe. So let's pray. God, we thank you for the glorious good news of of Romans, of your scripture, of what you teach us. Uh, We just confess that we can never, ever do enough to do it on our own. But we thank you that you love us in such a way to do for us what we can never do for ourselves. And so we pray that you just continue to teach us, guide us, show us, that our works are born out of a changed heart because of who we now are in you and what you've done for us. We pray all these things in Jesus' beautiful and precious name. Amen.